RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. All right, it's time for our Money Talks feature this Thursday morning here at RCR. Comes around quick. I say that every week as well. Farzan Arani joins us again. Hi, Farzan. Hi, good morning. We're going to get to currency versus bonds shortly because that explains a lot of what we're seeing. But first, let's have a quick whip around some of the stories that are in the news, business money-related stories in the news this week. Uh, This one caught my eye. Global trade falls at fastest pace since pandemic. And the reporting here on the Financial Times website. Demand for goods exports weakens on the back of higher inflation rate rises and spending on services. And it says world trade volumes fell at their fastest annual pace for almost three years in July, according to closely watched figures that signal rising interest rates are beginning to affect global demand for goods. I guess no surprise there, Farzan, would you say? Yeah, no surprise there, Paul. Um, Obviously, global trade is slowing down. Inflationary times, everything's more expensive. Um, there's currency differentials between countries. And obviously, as we've discussed, the world is bifurcating into the East and the West blocks. Um, so yeah, global trade is also slowing down because gone are the times when credit or money was really cheap and people were buying everything they could um, get on credit. So obviously, people are pulling in their purses and that also slows down global trade. And obviously, as debt gets expensive for businesses as well, companies that actually produce and manufacture, um, they have uh, constraints in place, which stops them from manufacturing as much as they could. But it's essentially just the consumer. He's tapped out, right? They can't afford. People used to buy $1,500, $2,000 iPhones every couple of years when they were brand new and they needed the newest iPhone. Now people are starting to rethink everything and going, do I really need this or will my phone work another couple of years? So, yeah, the purse strings are being tightened. Uh, Do you mean do they ask themselves, do I need to carry on with this greedy materialistic attitude for much longer? Yes, exactly right. Because that's really what that is, isn't it? That need for new stuff. I mean, okay, I'm not virtue signaling here, but I've got an Android phone. I've had it since 2018, mate. Yeah, same year, mate. Same year. And Um, it works perfectly fine. It does everything I wanted to do. It's not the sexiest thing in the world. I suppose it doesn't take 3D stabilized pictures. But who gives a damn, you know? Yeah, and and that's it, right? Uh, if you use a phone, we remember back in the days, we used to have a phone attached to the wall and you used to have to run to that phone. And now we've just been spoiled where the camera is on the phone, everything else is on the phone, people deal with their documents on the phone. So, yeah, it just depends from person to person of what they need and what their phone is for. Obviously, yeah, I, I'll leave it at that, Matt. It's, uh, people are now starting to realize that they don't constantly need more and more and more. And they could afford that when money was cheap or credit was cheap. Uh, For the last 40 years, as I said, the cycle has turned. And when people have started realizing that when money actually costs a lot more, they're going to be sensible about how they spend it and where they waste uh, those resources. But surely um, with that sort of pressure on, prices will have to come down inevitably, won't they? Well, yes, it depends, right? As I mentioned, uh, prices on essentials will keep going up because if there's a shortage, everyone needs to eat, but not everyone needs a new iPhone. So the non-discretionaries, uh, sorry, the non-discretionaries, yeah, will obviously go up uh, as there's more demand and less supply, but the yep. discretionary spending- That's food, is, right? That's like food, shelter, heat. 
Yeah, petrol, all of that stuff. Yep. Uh, whereas the discretionary spending is what can be curbed. You don't need a holiday every three months or six months. You might take a holiday once every couple of years, or you might just buy a new car uh, once every five years and so once every couple of years. So the discretionary spending is what gets curbed down, uh, which will obviously affect those businesses which are in the process or in the business of actually manufacturing discretionary goods. You don't need a $5,000 couch uh, that you used to spend money on just to impress your neighbors, keeping up with the Joneses, uh, or the most uh, newest version of a car parked in your driveway. So those are your discretionary spends, and those businesses that manufacture those will also be affected. So anything to do with kind of um, luxury household goods? I'm thinking cars now. You sort of kind of mentioned that. Any of those... um, categories are in for troubled times. Yes, in a way. Yes, yes. Because you need money to buy it, quote-unquote money, as we've discussed. Every Everything that we think is money is credit. So when credit tightens and the cost of money goes up, you have to be very careful what you're spending it on. Are we in a good position being a food producer, though? Because those are the in-demand items, right? So they will be fetching premiums. Does that help us, do you think, or will it? It it will, mate, because we need food. Obviously, we need food, but it's uh, it just it just depends on how much food, right? If there's surplus and we export it or we keep it within. Um, I remember, I think about eight or ten years back, I think I was in Australia at the time, and I read an article where New Zealand lamb was more expensive in New Zealand than it was in the UK. Yeah. Uh, because most of it gets exported. So, again, we sometimes we control those factors sometimes we don't it it just depends on how it is if the government says no we're not exporting so as you saw recently not recently but about five weeks back i think india put uh, controls on uh, rice exports because obviously it was getting it was inflationary in uh, india and they stopped uh, certain kinds of rice exports to other countries uh, because they obviously want to feed their own population first. Yeah. And these are the kind of controls that come into place um, eventually. Another story, Grant Robertson, Nicola Willis, that's the Labour Finance Minister and National Finance Spokesperson, uh, were debating banks, productivity and population in the last week or so. And the Finance Minister is quoted here as saying, he's keen to fix a bank funding gap for businesses but wants to avoid a solution in which the government steps in to directly finance small businesses. The lack of capital available for these enterprises is an issue for Nationals Finance spokeswoman Nicola Willis. She wants to expand the Commerce Commission's inquiry into banking to include regulations imposed by the Reserve Bank of New Zealand. And so it goes on. So, wow, uh, that's an admission that banks aren't lending to the needs anyway of business. Yeah. Is that what that's that, saying? Yeah, that that that's the whole thing I mentioned, mate. It's um it's a credit tightening event that we're facing now. Um we'll obviously explain later on of um how all of this system works. But as I said, all money in our system is credit. Uh, well, most of it, other than the notes created by the Reserve Bank, everything else is fictional money credit created by the commercial banks and not uh by the Reserve Bank. So banks obviously look at what's happening overseas, whether it's in New Zealand, Australia, overseas. They've seen a few banks collapsing. It was great when businesses and 
um, first home buyers could afford to buy a house at two or three percent. Uh, as they've seen banks collapsing and there's pressure on their own balance sheets, they obviously have to make it more difficult for people to borrow money. Uh, interest rates go up, so their servicing uh, goes up. So banks are reining in their balance sheets, obviously because of collateral, which is the house prices are going backwards as well, as I've explained the bank's balance sheets uh, on previous occasions. So banks have to tighten their belt to only be lending to the very, very niche client who can service the debt three, four, five times over. And they've looked at every way the deal can go bad. And then um, there's still buffers. And that's when they lend, right? So in these times, the banks are obviously going to protect their own balance sheets. They're not going to lend to the marginal buyer. And then credit obviously contracts. And if you think about it, our entire world is credit. This is what people, the average person, was never taught in school. And that's why I share a lot of the stuff is everything is credit. Everything is credit. And without the system, when, when credit collapses, everything collapses because it is the credit money which is sitting in your bank account, which you can spend tomorrow. And if the bank collapses, you don't have access to that money or your bank account is shut down. You don't have access to that money. So it has a flow on effect from one business to the next. And of course, banks are going to tighten up their belts. They're going to make it way difficult. We saw it a few years back where construction finance was pulled back with what was happening in the commercial market with uh, uh, COVID and office buildings and all of that. So the commercial space is really crying out for money. Residential, there's a little bit of lending there as well. Uh, but businesses also, as I mentioned previously, small businesses are more risky. So banks will tighten their belt and make it very difficult for these businesses to lend. Now the government just has to come in and say, oh, we're going to make this, 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 this. Um, but the whole point is this is more centralization of power. The bank is a business in itself. It has to protect its balance sheet. The government should not be in the business of telling the banks to lend more or not. It's just like it telling me whether I should lend you money or not. Um, the bank uh, should not be told by the government whether it should or not. Do you think the government has any responsibility if business finance is hard to get to step in as um, that story sort of uh, touched on to uh, fix what they're calling the bank funding gap for businesses. Is that a role for government? I mean, you have to keep business going somehow, don't you? Can't let it completely crash. <laughs> well, they could reduce taxes. <laughs> we've okay. talked We've yeah. talked about that. Uh, in Australia, I think there's a depreciation which you're allowed to front load the depreciation up front. Um, for small businesses, that's what they did, I think, quite a few years back. And I think they've still extended that policy. So the government can meddle in other ways. They could say, hey, listen, we'll take less from you uh, or we'll let you upload the depreciation and stuff like that. But the government, where's the government? Again, we've discussed this over so many weeks, man. The, where does the government get the money from? So us, us essentially are taking on more debt. So if they're going to try, they tried to do this during COVID, right? So um, the government guaranteed, because during COVID, the banks realized that, man, if the whole economy shuts down, small businesses and businesses will not be making income. So the government said, okay, we're setting up these programs. And I don't exactly remember all the programs, but they set those up for small business. And I think they guarantee that in, um, they could, the bank could give uh, uh, loans to the small businesses and businesses, and the government would guarantee 
at very low interest rates for the first couple of years, or it had to be paid by the first two or three years or something back like that. I can't remember the exact thing. But this is the whole thing. The government should not be backstopping businesses because on the face of it, we think they're helping businesses, but technically what are they doing? They're telling the banks to lend. So instead of the bank taking on the risk, the bank says, okay, we'll just lend it to the business. We don't care because the government's backing it anyway. So what has the government done? It's backed the bank, not the business, really. Well, when you think about COVID, depending on how you think about it and how you frame it, it's sort of like a mafia shakedown. So you have this this pandemic, which now we see that that virtually every response to it was inappropriate and wrong, and none of it was necessary. So you impose a huge financial cost on your economy. You provide finance in the form of loans, some grants, but mainly loans for businesses for a problem that you caused, and then you hammer them later on to get that back. That's a shakedown. Yes, I'll just use one word, yes. No comment. Completely, isn't it? <laughs> yes, no further comment. Um, you I mean, pe- problem- people should be a little twisted up about that because that that's, well, it kind of feels criminal. Well, if I force you to be locked down, then because there's a global pandemic. Oh, no I- evidence, no evidence no. Of, of whether that will work or not, none whatsoever. Well, I think two or three years later, we've established lockdowns didn't work. Uh, people were well, still but catching we knew at the, the time. virus. Well, we Anyone knew. with half a brain knew at the time. Again, half a brain is not that common, Paul. <laughs> half oh. a thinking brain, half a critical brain is important. I don't well, think well, the, the sheep, size... The sheep were bar, barring and, and yeah. the field together. But, but okay, so from the get-go... Half a thinking all... brain is more important rather than a full non-thinking brain, right? So that's the most important thing is the government tells you we're trying to keep you safe. So we're going to lockdowns, then they know that this will collapse the economy. So they then tell banks, hey, do a risk-free lend. We government backstop it. Uh, we'll pay the interest if things go bad or something along those lines. As I said, don't quote me on that. And then obviously also it gave money to businesses to keep people on the payroll. So they with ambiguous the with ambiguous criteria that didn't that were that wasn't buttoned down hard enough at the time. So people took that money thinking that they were um, you know, legitimately entitled to it. And now inland revenue is coming back, breaking their balls literally to claw money back and saying, you know, you you kind of took advantage of it when they, it seems to me anyway, talking to some business owners involved in this over the time, that it was purposefully um, ambiguous in the language and terminology used. So you could come back later on and claw it back. Yeah, mate. Um, the one wow. thing I just want people to realize it's that this whole play has been in decades, right? It's not overnight. I know. The the unfortunate thing is the same people who break things are the ones who are then asked to come and fix it. So Problem, reaction, solution. Exactly. So it just means when, uh, let's say, if the Reserve Bank is increasing interest rates right now and depends on what happens if banks collapse, this, that, then they'll say, during the global financial crisis, for example, they said, oh, because the banks were bad and they lent to uh, irresponsibly and stuff. In 2008, it was the mortgages that caused problems on the bank's balance sheet. This time, it's going to be the bonds, but it's a central bank doing stupid things and stupid incentives behind the scenes that causes that kind of behavior. So they cause um, the system to break. 
And then they are the ones who are asked to fix it, which means they get more power. This is centralization. Instead, what is the Reserve Bank of New Zealand? It is the Central Bank of New Zealand. Think about the word centralization. And what that means, yeah. Because it's central bank digital currency. We already have banks right now, and it is bank digital currency. As I mentioned, we already have digital currency. So central bank digital currency, is this a solution looking, going around, looking for a problem? And sooner than later, I think we're going to have the problem, and then they'll have to launch their CBDC because the the the, the conversation is, hey, look, these banks went bust, banks balance sheets, were weak. How about you just trust the central bank because the central bank balance sheet is much stronger and nudge the banks out of the business. This is interesting because I interviewed an Australian financial <laughs> journalist last week, David James, and I asked him about CBDC, and he said that that would never come in because the whole banking system, the whole money system, relies on interest making money from you know the debt from the money, and if that's not there, then you know commerce finance banking as we know it collapses and the incentive to keep that model is so strong that it would never go but if you were prepared to lose banks shut down banks get rid of the middlemen it wouldn't really matter anyway would it yeah but what i want people to understand is as i've explained i think now for the very first couple of weeks banks were not bad it's the centralization since 1913 since the federal reserve was created to back these banks, uh, again, read, read, read a certain. Yeah, but if you're going to do a big reset, if you're going to do a big reset and you introduce a global central bank digital currency, let's say, you don't want to have banks. Yeah, they don't want it. And as I said, yeah, goodbye uh, banks. I don't know who this journalist is, but the whole point is what I'm. I wouldn't say it wouldn't come in. I'd probably say that central bank digital currency will definitely come in. Watch this space. It'll yep. definitely come in. But then people will start rejecting it globally, just like they have in Nigeria and other places. Okay. People will yep. start rejecting it, and eventually then it collapses because people will see through the facade of this is just a control mechanism. As I said, it's programmable money, and money is just the basic lifeblood of anything, of life in today's world. So if you bring in central bank digital currencies, most people will lap it up like they initially did with the COVID virus. Until they stuff. find when they get outside the 15-minute city, they can't buy anything. Yep, exactly. Not not just that, all the other stuff that will come in with it. I still want to, at some stage, we'll do a conversation on central bank digital currency because I want people to understand what this is. It's just programmable money. So yep. they could put negative interest rates. So they might say, hey, Paul, you've got $2,000 in your bank account. If you don't spend it this week, it's all gone. So obviously, you're going to go out and spend it, and everyone else is. But we only have so many uh, real goods in the economy uh, or so many liters of petrol that are imported into the country. So everything gets bid up and we go into hyperinflation. So that's what I'm saying. They're hubris. The central planners think they're just academics. They don't actually run anything productive in the economy. They just have theories and they don't work in the real world. Unfortunately, when the CBDC comes in and when it breaks down, we'll go back to a barter system. Um, and then people, we ourselves will have to redesign um, the next system ground up. I thought it was a bit rich of the finance minister, if the quote is uh, correct here, saying that uh, he's keen to fix bank funding for businesses, the gap, but wants to avoid a solution in which the government steps in to directly finance small businesses. He wasn't so worried about doing that for the media, 
with the um, Public Interest Journalism Fund of $55 million and full retail of nearly $200 million spending on COVID advertising. That's that's directly financing small business, isn't it? Yeah, but my, this is where we're going into a moral hazard. Now, this is what I'm saying where the government then says, look, we're trying to help. And there's a quote out there saying... Uh, <laughs> Any government program, any temporary government program becomes permanent, right? It's never temporary. And and there's a, it's like a snake, uh, what is that, snake skin or snake something salesman. I'm from the government. I'm here to help you. I think, yeah. yeah. I think there was, uh, I think it was one of the US presidents who said, uh, the, the the worst quote out there is, I'm from the government and I'm here to help you. Yeah, Ronald so Reagan that, said that. That was yeah, Ronald there Reagan. There you go. There you go. Mate, you, you have good memory. But that's the whole thing. So if the government's stepping in to try and help, uh, right now, you might say, oh, yeah, that's great because small business is the lifeblood. And this is where I'm saying we're getting to a thin part where this is a moral hazard, where the government will say we're coming in to help this. Then when the banking system collapses, again, you'll say the same thing. Look, the government is trying to help. But as I said, the same people who break the system are the ones who are asked to come and fix it. So I just let people think I'm not going to comment anymore on this. So if you think, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah why shouldn't the government come and make it easy for small businesses? The government will keep coming in. The government will keep coming into your lives and say, let us help you, let us help you, let us help you. I'm just, I'm not saying any government is bad or anything like that. What I'm just trying to say is, man, there's a moral hazard. Whatever happened to capitalism? This is exactly what happens in communist countries. The government wants to control everything. If I have a good product and if I'm a successful business, I should be able to make a profit and my customers should come to me without the government handouts and the government always stepping in to want to help. The bad businesses need to go bust because when these interest rates were cheap and they took on too much debt, those businesses need to go bust. And as I've explained before, there's a lot of zombie uh, companies even in the US. I'm sure there's a lot of zombie companies even in New Zealand who took on massive amounts of debt when interest rates were really low. And now the game is up because as interest rates keep going up, they can barely service the interest cost. So if their product is really that good, they should be able to increase margins to pay off that debt, but they won't be able to because they only survived when interest rates were really low and the 40-year cycle has turned. One more issue that we can touch on just before we go again to um, bonds versus currency. And people have been talking about this and we can't do a deep dive into this right now, but maybe we can come back in a week or two with um, your thoughts on it. And we're talking about the NZ Loyal tax system that is being proposed. And uh, they're saying they're offering a very simple 1% financial transaction tax. And they say that means that each time a financial transaction is made, 1% of the cost of that will be taxed. And they give some examples. So you buy a $5 coffee. Good luck with that. It's more like six or seven now. You pay 1% back to the government. But if you buy a $5 million house, again, 1% of that $5 million goes back to the government. And that replaces all other taxes. And uh, also, they say, means that we don't have any further need for inland revenue. And uh, they've got a whole list of benefits. We won't go into those right now. Some of them are psychological. Uh, so a 1% transaction tax. I don't know how well-versed with the financial history of the country you are, but there was a political party back in the uh, 70s, 80s, and it's probably still their policy. They were called social credit, and their taxation system was based on a transaction tax, you know, um, in, in kind of the way that NZ Loyal 
are talking about there. So does any of that at first blush off the top of your head make any sense? Um, it, it could make sense. Well, we get rid of all taxes and it would just be a transaction tax, right? Whether it's, I don't know what you read out. It's a financial transaction, but uh, I'm assuming it's a transaction tax on everything in the economy. Yeah. Um, again, I haven't done any numbers. I haven't looked at that. But if you just look at, uh, just, just again, let, let's comment on it in a week or two. But yep. if you just take 1% on the New Zealand GDP, let's say, for example, because GDP, obviously, it depends on how the GDP is calculated and stuff like that. But uh the current GDP might be about 260 billion. I, I can't look at the exact numbers, but as of December 22, it says our GDP was about 250 billion. Let's say our GDP was 300 billion. And if you take 1% on that, what is that? 3 billion? Do you think 3 billion will keep us going? Again, I'm, I haven't seen the exact details and that's just the GDP. But again, uh, I'm, I would love to read up on this, but without so I don't comment to either. Okay, well let's do a bit like of it's good or bad. Yeah, let's... yeah. But the whole point is, let's say, for example, you create a screw. Okay, based on what you've just told me, every transaction. But if you create a screw, and then I use that screw in one of, I'm creating a phone. I use that screw in there. So first of all, I paid you one percent tax when I buy the screw off you. Yeah. Then I put it in my phone. When, well, I no, sell but you, when you buy the materials to make the screw. Yeah. And then somebody else adds on to make their product. And yeah. then when I sell it, I get 1%. Then the next person purchasing it off me gets 1%. So then if that's the case, they're clipping 1% off every transaction along the way. But I don't know if that's what they're saying. So I'm not 100% sure because then if you're calculating 1% on every clip along the way, because for me to create a phone, maybe I need 20 parts. So those 20 people who supplied it to me have already then, so the government's taken 1% on all of those 20 bits. Plus when I then sell the final product, they're taking 1% on the final. So that's double dipping as I see it from what you've just mentioned. But yep. let's say if it's 1% only on the final stuff, then I don't think it will be enough because. No. And how do you work? Go about working this? So I'm not quite sure, mate. Uh, but... No, well, well let, let's try and find out a bit more so we can have a more detailed response. But one glaring thing, it seems to me, just thinking about it right here, is if you paid for stuff in cash, you could completely avoid it, which means they would have to end cash. And what do you? Well, that would seem to go against what their. Um, support base would want, which I'm pretty sure is the retention of cash, like our listeners who would be interested in this anyway. So if you did everything as a, or most things as a cash transaction, there goes your 1% because you'd have to have that transaction recorded somewhere, wouldn't you? Well, that's the whole CBDC. So again, yeah. I don't know which 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 party this is or what, what, what it is, but the whole point is... Um, that takes you to CBDC. And as I said, the whole point of CBDC was take us to an electronic system. Yeah. And so they can tax you at source. So if this party is saying 1% is great and we just don't do any cash transactions, they're actually trying to take you towards CBDC because then the government can keep a record. Every time you pay something, there's 1% taken out straight away. Well, well they'd so have to limit the cash transactions because they would then limit their tax take. Well, exactly. So they'll get rid of cash. cash transactions. They'll say, they? this is the way we'll get rid of cash. Um, because then everything's electronic. And every time you buy something, there's a 1% that's taken at source. And I've 
I think I mentioned this even in India, that sometimes there's a tax at source. And this is what the whole reason of them bringing in the CBDC is they want more taxes. They want to milk us more. Um, now, again, I'm not saying this is I, uh, what party this is or what I, I, I don't exactly know and why they've decided to do this. But if it is all electronic, again, the government can see everything you're doing, whether you bought a coffee, you did this or did that. So where's your freedom in that to be able to do that? Now, uh, there's a simple example. Also, they say, oh, it's because there's a tax cheats who aren't paying tax. But me buying a coffee is not me cheating anyone. Or let's say if I have a babysitter who comes and looks after my kids, I wish I had some, but I don't right now. But let's say me and my wife wanted to go out for dinner and someone was babysitting my kids. What do you do? You give them a $20, $50 note. You're not going to say, hey, remove your FPOS machine so I can pay you via CBDC. Yes, you can do internet bank transfers. Is the government going to take 1% from a little 14 or 15-year-old girl who's just babysitting your kids? So they want to tax everyone, mate. That's it. Now, again, I'm not going to go into much detail because I haven't looked at this policy. No, and and to be fair, I'm just taking um, sentences and a, and a paragraph or two from the policy statement on that. So we'll we'll hold fire, but I want to come back and and maybe uh, talk more about that because I know maybe, our listeners maybe Asia can get some more information from whoever this party is. So yeah, we can NZ loyal. Just... No, we've we've got the contact details, so you can do that. Absolutely. Okay. I'll we'll probably it someone to get it now. to me. I'm not going to sit and do the research myself. I'm happy for someone to flick it through to me, and then I'll have a look at it. Okay. Well, I'm sure that they're probably one of one of their folks has probably already heard this, and uh, I'm sure we'll be contacted soon, and and we'll be corrected in the way we've been talking about it. Possibly. Anyway. Okay. So let, let's leave that there for another day, and um, the second part of what we want to talk about today. It's sort of like a game of two halves here, in the time that we have left. Okay, we've talked about bonds and currency before, but I think we need to go over that, um, well, maybe once more or have another look at it so people really understand the interplay between the two and how it affects people's you know, wealth and lives. Yeah, I, I mentioned last week, I just wanted to go into this. It's just a bit of, I'm, I'm just going to do it on the very surface so people can understand, again, how the monetary system works. As I mentioned previously, when you talk about bonds, bonds is just something, it's a piece of paper. And uh, going back to when bonds really started, a government issued a bond with coupons. And it literally used to be a certificate with little coupons on the side. So let's say if it was a 10-year bond, it used to have little paper coupons attached to it that you could rip that coupon off. Let's say it was a $1,000 bond, which promised you 5% interest. So you could take pull out that coupon in year one, take it to your bank, and they paid you the 5% interest. And you literally used to have to pull out those coupon every year on maturity and go to the bank and they paid you interest. And after the 10 years, then you would take the bond certificate to the bank and you'd get your original principal back. So hopefully people understood that. That's how bonds used to work. Now, as bonds, as governments, banks, uh, insurance companies, all of these uh, issue bonds, they offer you a coupon rate, which is the interest rate, which they offer you for your investment um, because they need the funding. Now, what's happened recently, what people need to understand how, how the bond math works. I'm just explaining bond math in a very simple fashion. Um, in this example that we spoke about, I'm just slowing down a little bit. We talked about a 5%. So if the inflation in the economy is higher, the government could be giving me 5%, but I'm spending 9% 
on more on products that I used to get cheaper at the supermarket. So it's a negative interest rate. And as I've explained previously, bonds have an inverse relationship to the interest rate coupon. So when interest rates were going down and at COVID, they were at their lowest, bonds actually go up in value. Because at, during COVID, uh, if I bought a bond from the government, it was giving me 0.25%. But if I have a bond that I'd bought in nine, uh, 2017, which was paying me 5%, do you see how if I could buy something today and get only 0.25, but there was a bond that was paying me 5%, the bond value goes up because it's paying me a higher return. Now, the inverse is true. So if I bought a bond during COVID, which was only paying me, let's say, 025 or 0.5%. And now interest rates in 2023 are paying me 5 or 5.5% 5 at the front end. That bond is losing value because I could buy that same bond or $1,000 bond today and get 5.5%. Yeah. Whereas the person who bought it in 2019 or 2020 is only going to get 0.5% for the next 10 years or from 2019 to 2029. Okay, right. so that is what how the inverse relationship of a bond works. Now, why I want to explain this to people is when when during two thousand and eight, the global financial crisis was caused by banks uh, in the housing market flipping homes and bundling them under mortgage-backed securities and all of that. I would recommend people who haven't seen it watch the movie The Big Short on Netflix or something along those lines. What's happened this time is the banking collapse that is has started and is continuing under the surface is because of the bond market breaking. And when I, I've just explained the bond math right now. So you, when we talk about your signature value banks or your signature bank or First Republic are the three banks that have gone under in, Australia, uh, in America in March early this year. What happened is as the Federal Reserve started increasing interest rates, the bonds on the bank's balance sheets started losing value. And I got you, because they had a lower interest rate yield when they bought. Yes, yes. So when they bought, and again, as I mentioned, out there, you have anything from a two, three-month government bond, six-month, uh, two-year, three-year, five-year, 10-year, and 30-year bonds. So banks obviously wanted the most stable funding on their balance sheet and the most liquid asset, which is seen as the government bonds. So their liquidity is your term deposits on a bank's balance sheet is the most liquid asset. And the second thing is bonds, government bonds, because they have the US bond is the most liquid asset in the world, right? So what happened was as interest rates started going up, the bond value started dropping off. And in SVB's case, as I said, a billionaire tweet here and there, and people started pulling money out of the bank. So the most liquid asset, firstly, was the deposits, the bank deposits, which started pulling out. And as more and more people come and say, can I have my money back or they're transferring money, the bank doesn't have it because we've discussed that if we live in a world of fractional reserve banking. Yeah, the money got uh, a ratio 10%. of what, 10, 10, yeah, 10 Exactly. 10, 10, 10, 10, 10. Yeah. So when people start making a bank run, a run on the banks, they have to start liquidating their assets. They can't go out and sell properties overnight. So the most liquid asset is the government bonds. And now, they've gone down in value. They've gone tremendously down in value. So their so balance sheet is sick. Is sick and now they have to liquidate them. So if I bought a bond for a million dollars and now the bond is worth 700,000 or 600,000, I have to liquidate it because I have Paul 
asking for his deposit back. So I have yeah. no choice, but I have to liquidate the bond right now because I have to pay you the money. Okay. And this is what happened. This is what's causing the banks in America to go bust because they have to liquidate it right now. They can't wait for the 10-year maturity. And I explained a bond and a coupon just before. There is no problem with me. If if the if there wasn't a bank run, I can hold a million dollar bond because in 10 years time, I will definitely get my million dollars back. But I have a depositor asking me for money right now. So I have no choice but to liquidate it right now because he needs the money right now. Okay? Yeah. So what I want people to understand, I don't have to sell it because it's gone upside down because interest rates have gone up. But if I just hold it for the 10 years, I am still guaranteed my million dollars back. It's a million dollar bond, which right now on what they call mark to market, because if I want to liquidate it today, I will get 600 for it. But if I hold it for the next eight years, I will still get a million bucks back. But I don't have that optionality of holding it on my balance sheet because there's depositors on my front door asking me for money. You got to sell. You have to sell. It's a forced sell. So what happened in March in America is the bond market's upside down. Banks are bleeding on their balance sheets. And when people think, oh, that stopped, no, it hasn't stopped. The Federal Reserve, their Reserve Bank, came in. And what they said was, another acronym for our listeners, they created something called a BTFP program, which is Bank Term Funding Program, because they saw more and more people were doing bank runs. And the FDIC, which is their government insurance on banks' uh, deposits for 250K, was in trouble. So they created this thing called BTFP program, where the Federal Reserve, the Reserve Bank said, guess what, guys? We'll buy 100 cents on the dollar. So if your bond is now, your million-dollar bond is 600,000, no, no, it's okay. We'll buy it from you for a million bucks. So your balance sheet is whole. And that's how they've temporarily fixed the problem. Right, but this okay. BTFP program is in place only for a year. So it comes due again March this year. Now, again, there's nothing stopping the Federal Reserve from stop again extending it for another year, as we know. But what I'm saying is also a couple of weeks back, I told you that banks were banks' balance sheets were upside down, right? They have unrealized losses. Do you remember that word I'd said? Because they haven't realized the loss by selling the bond into the market right now. They've just transferred it to the Reserve Bank for its full face value, and they've made the Reserve Bank has made them whole. So they look okay for now, but there is trouble brewing under the system, and we will have problems coming up. And this is globally, banks have the same issue. In Europe and Japan, Europe, let's talk, for example, they were negative interest rates, and now their interest rates are positive 4%. What do you think their bonds are doing? Their million-dollar bonds are probably sitting at about 400000 Ooh, so we have a big problems on our hand, big problem on our hands, and I just want I had told people so. Uh, the thing I'd mentioned last week, and I quickly want to go to it. I will just put a comment out there saying my access to the Reserve Bank's uh, data has been, uh, let's just say, been made difficult. But what I was trying to say, if anyone understands accounting, right, a balance sheet is assets equals liabilities plus equity. So when you minus your liabilities from your assets is what your equity is. Now, when I talked about the Reserve Bank's balance sheet, now I'll make it very simple this time because I heard reheard our conversation from last week. So I want to make it very simple. The Reserve Bank of New Zealand's total assets are, say, $94 billion, Okay, Their total liabilities are $91 billion. 
So they have a $3 billion net asset equity position. Assets minus liabilities is equity. So they have a $3 billion net asset equity position. But what I was trying to highlight to people was on the asset side, they have a crown indemnity for LSAP program for $7.2 billion, which means without that $7.2, they're not $3 billion in the positive. They're $4 billion in the negative. Oh, yeah, we had that figure. We, we talked about that $4 billion figure last week, I think. Exactly. So the in, in, in New Zealand's case, the Reserve Bank of New Zealand has bought the government's bonds the government bonds upside down because the Reserve Bank itself is increasing the interest rates to supposedly, quote-unquote, fight inflation. So the Reserve Bank bought the balance sheet from the New Zealand government, and they also got the New Zealand government indemnity, saying if in the future these bonds lose value, you owe us the money. Now the Reserve Bank itself is increasing interest rates to, quote-unquote, fight inflation. They are increasing interest rates to curb inflation, but when I say, quote-unquote, curve inflation is because the only logic is if we increase interest rates, most people will not go out and spend money. Because if you have 100 bucks that you're earning and your expenses were 90, now because your interest rates have gone up and your mortgage is taking over that remaining 10, you just have no more disposable income to spend anywhere else. When they're increasing interest rates, the bond is losing value. And now the New Zealand government owes the Reserve Bank of New Zealand $7.2 billion dollars for the indemnity that our government signed, which is, again, taxpayer money, yeah, for the debt they took on from the Reserve Bank liquidating this, uh, just doing the LSAP program. Because remember, the Reserve Bank bought all these bonds so the government could just flush the economy with money during COVID when they locked us up. Okay, so that's how it worked. Right, I got it. Sorry. I was yeah, just, and sorry. anyone can go on to the New the Zealand track, Central yeah. Bank balance sheet And uh, the central bank balance sheet, the Reserve Bank of New Zealand central bank balance sheet back in 2020, now I don't know the exact number, but it was somewhere between 23 to 24 uh, billion dollars. Yeah. And there's a graph out there. Just look, you could just see a big spike and the New Zealand Reserve Bank of New Zealand's uh, balance sheet uh, as of August 2023 sits at $97 billion. Right. Okay. So they've added an extra. $70 $70 billion, which is the Reserve Bank of New Zealand creating money out of thin air. Gee, that's a lot of money to create out of thin air. Okay, and just to finish up, so um, where does that leave currency? What do, what does interest rates do to our local currency? Yeah, so this is what I just want to, again, uh, just explain to, uh, just basic, on a very basic level, I want to explain. So as you said, as interest rates go up, Either one of two things happen. When the interest rates keep going up, the bonds keep losing value, which means um, the government has to borrow more and more and more to spend into the economy. Okay. Now, the whole thing is, let's say we go the other way around, because the government taps out. As we explained in the US example, if your taxes are three, I'm just giving an example. Let's say their taxes are three billion, but your interest expense is two billion. You only have one billion left to spend into the economy. So the government now has to do more fiscal spending, which comes from where? Either they tax you more to create more income, or they have to issue new debt. So the government has to keep issuing more debt, and as they create more debt with higher interest rates, they go bust because you can't create a Ponzi, continue a Ponzi scheme for too long, as interest rates are too high. Now, let's say on the other end, so your currency gets stronger because your interest rates are higher, okay? But on the other end, if the government just can't even pay its debt, forget infrastructure spend or hospital expenses or superannuation and all of that, as we've explained, 
then the Reserve Bank might have to drop interest rates. Now, this is globally. I'm just talking through a CISO example. If interest rates go up, what happens? And let's say if they, uh, there's another freak event around the world, whatever that could be, then the government needs to be liquefied again and interest rates need to be dropped again. The so next pandemic. Could be, could be anything, right? Could be anything. <laughs> yeah. But now they get one more opportunity to drop interest rates again. And if interest rates go down and the government takes on more debt, what has happened? People have seen this game now that the more money is created in the system, it's inflationary. So if the Reserve Bank tries to save the government and the bond market and drops interest rates, then your currency goes into hyperinflation and the currency collapses because they have to create. So I've just told you the Reserve Bank's balance sheet from 2020, where it was 23 or 24 billion has gone in August 23, three years later, to 97 billion. Can you imagine in the next one, how much more magical money they're going to have to create or how many more government bonds they're going to have to buy, which means there's so many more billions of New Zealand dollars running in the economy, which then collapses the currency because Which there's is, because there's not enough demand for the dollar to meet the number of dollars in the system. Is that is that, that too also? But we also explain what real in, well we explained in our inflation chat what, what real inflation is. It's not your house price going up. Your house yeah. is still your four bedroom house that you came to yesterday and you came back to it a week later. It's the currency losing value, and that's why your three hundred thousand dollar house is now a million. So the more money is flushing around in the economy the currency is losing value. So the currency right. starts collapsing, and this will become pretty obvious because, as I just said, in the next one, they're going to have to create so much more money if they drop interest rates and create more money. The currency collapses. The real asset, your house is not going up. Instead of $1 million, it might not take you $4 million to buy that same house. So I just wanted to explain if interest rates keep going up, the government goes broke which I've said is a possibility by 2026, most governments might default on their debt. So think through if reserve banks keep increasing interest rates, the governments might have to default on their promises. If interest rates go down, your currency gets hyperinflated into oblivion. And this is the Venezuelas and stuff where they then just go and buy, get their hands on anything real because they're just going to, this, this treadmill can't stop. They're just going to have to create more and more money and keep interest rates low to fund, keep funding the government. Wow. The way the citizens lose is what I'm yeah, saying. Yeah. The average person loses. Not much room for maneuver. And if you're talking 70 billion from the last event, you can bet the next event is going to be that or more. It always gets bigger and bigger, right? Yeah, yeah. And, so 100 and, billion, 150 billion, who knows? And and this is why even when you said when the government, can the government now backstop small business? I'm just saying we're getting into moral hazard territory too much because... We're just getting at this stage of how many how many boats is the New Zealand government expected to come in and stop from sinking? People who have made bad decisions in their life, if the business was not being run properly. Yeah, but what if the government's under? actions have destroyed the business Well, that's a um, environment? Right? Yes, of course. You know, um, and that could be argued now. Okay, well, that's a big wow. Um, let's leave it there and come back uh, next week and maybe um, – Hopefully we can talk more about that whole idea of a 1% transaction tax and anything else that's happening. That was really interesting. Now, Farzan, if people want to get in touch, please remind us the best way for people to do, for folks to do that, to get in touch with you. Yes, yeah, so if people could just jump on my website, it's called successsimplified.life. And at the bottom of the page, it's contact us so you can get in touch with me. Thanks, Paul. 
Okay, that's another Money Talks. We'll, we'll talk to you next week, Farzan. Thanks again. Thanks. Have a great week, everyone. Cheers. RCR with Paul Brennan. Reality Check Radio.